Welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, where we aim to decipher, demystify, and explore the leading world of oncology and all that the research has to offer. I'm joined here with my illustrious co-host, Dr. Michael Fernando. Oh, Josh, you're very kind to call me illustrious. That's Well, your hair looks great today, so I'm going to say illustrious. I'm not sure if you mean... I'm not sure if you mean illustrious or luscious. Uh... <laughs> illustrious and luscious. Look, I can just compliment you as that. You're so... all right. We'll, we'll keep you around. Yeah. This is part two of our gastric and esophageal talk, where we explore the metastatic endpoints and advances in care. Two of the most pivotal aspects of gastric and esophageal cancer come from the last 15 years with the advent of anti-HER2 therapy, notably TOGA and Destiny Gastric 04 results pending and immunotherapy. Uh, Josh, just out of interest, do you know who the most uh, influential person in uh, history who had uh, gastric cancer and probably died of gastric cancer was? Can I get like a, a stream of what they were known for to help guide my decision? To be honest, I just wanted to see what names you would throw out, but there were military history. I thought Edgar Allan Poe. I don't know uh, why, yes. but he just came to my Edgar Allan Poe, the renowned, the renowned military genius. Um, what about uh, Isaac Newton? No, not Isaac Newton. A military I Yeah, I'm not going to get this. Just to tell the audience. So it was actually uh, Napoleon. Um, Napoleon Bonaparte, l'empereur of the French Empire. Um, he, uh, after he was exiled following his defeat at Waterloo, he was noted to have become significantly uh, more frail, lost a lot of weight, lost a lot of appetite, and potentially was uh, uh, bleeding from his bowels on what might have been hematemesis and melina. Um, there, after he died, there were, of course, lots of conspiracy theories that he may have been poisoned. But uh, modern historians think that he might have uh, actually suffered from and died of gastric cancer. And an interesting tidbit about Napoleon and his family, I know we're going very, very off topic here, is that um, there was a significant family history of uh, of gastric cancer, which had claimed uh, multiple relatives of his. And so, who knows? I mean, there's no way to know this for sure, but there may have been a genetic component to uh, Napoleon's uh, gastric cancer. But his legend, could you call it a legend? His um, his story lives on. Definitely, definitely is legend. There we go. So to start our, our, our story regarding HER2-positive gastric cancer, I'm going to be talking about the TOGA trial. This is a 2010 trial, which is trastuzumab in combination with chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone for treatment of HER2-positive advanced gastric or GOJ, gastroesophageal junction cancer, known as TOGA. This was a phase three open-label randomized controlled trial. To talk about the background, and I know we've already gone over this in the last episode, but in case you missed it, you should check it out. And in case you heard it, you could listen to it again to learn something new. Um, so it's a, it's a very common cancer, you know, in very high death rates, especially globally. While there have been some advances, most people will present at late stage, meaning that they're going to be incurable, or even if we try perioperative, there's a huge chance that they will recur. 
Now, I mentioned briefly magic as well. While it's not the standard of care anymore and FLOT is, it did show that perioperative chemo improved outcomes and FLOT was superior in both outcomes and toxicity profiles. What they've also found, and yes, the stats will vary where you look, is that having HER2 positivity can be seen in about 13, well, one of the, one of the meta-analyses I read said 13.4%, but to be safe, tell someone it's between 10 to 15. It is one of those things where HER2 gastric cancer or HER2 in association with gastric cancer is not an association that a lot of people commonly make, certainly not a lot of lay mm. people. HER2, is, of course, is associated with breast cancer. We all know the story of Herceptin, and if you haven't already, you should listen to our HER2-positive breast cancer episodes um, from a couple of weeks ago. However, when you're looking at a patient with gastric cancer, HER2-positivity is not something that you think of straight away. So if you're going to take one thing from this episode, when you're dealing with a patient with new diagnosis of gastric cancer, remember and consider adding it on at the outset because, as Josh will tell us, it definitely does uh, change the treatment options. Again, the stats will always change about how often it's diagnosed, but another when I Googled, I, go- I did another Google, and essentially it's between 6 to 30% of patients. So choose your number. It's more common than not, so it's worthwhile testing for at time of diagnosis, given the risks that they might recur. And there's one with potentially a secondary treatment option coming on the horizon. And actually, there already is a second treatment option in the second line setting, but I'm not going to talk in detail about that today. I'm mostly going to talk about first line therapy in the metastatic setting. So what was the objective of this trial? The objective was to see trastuzumab, you know, that heavy hitter we've spoken about previously for gastric cancer to assess the clinical efficacy and safety for chemo with chemo for first line treatment of advanced gastric and GOJ cancers that are overexpressed in HER2. This was a randomized controlled trial. It was open label. There are 24 centers across Asia, Central and South America and Europe. Inclusion criteria, pretty standard, over 18 unresectable or metastatic, interesting an ECOG performance status of zero to two. So what this is saying is those patients who've been treated don't generally rock up as healthy as many of our other cancers. Would you agree, Mike? I definitely would agree, Josh. It is um, a very, very nasty cancer and um, you frequently see patients who have significant loss of weight, loss of appetite, and it's not like breast cancer. It's not a cancer that is in an area that is immediately uh, visible or accessible or symptomatic. And so it's it's a very insidious presentation, but it means that patients frequently present with poor ECOG, significant loss of weight, significant um, protein and nutritional deficiencies. Exactly. Now, when we talk about HER2 positivity, there had to be either IHC, there had to be IHC and FISH positive, and there was an implication with outcomes. Although, this area is becoming murky. Exclusion criteria, previous chemo for metastatic disease, so previous chemo in the adjuvant setting was fine. If you had congestive heart failure, if you had a left ventricular ejection fraction less than 50%, uncontrolled hypertension, chest pain, angina pectoris, arrhythmias, lack of physical integrity of the upper GI and malabsorption syndrome, 
active GI bleeding or evidence of brain metastases. To summarize that in a nutshell, if you're really unwell, you're not going to get on the trial. Some of these things are a little bit antiquated, like uncontrolled hypertension. If it's really uncontrolled and really bad, you're going to fix that first before you put someone on chemo plus trastuzumab because they might just have a brain hemorrhage and die. Active GI bleeding, you're going to fix that before you give chemo and, and trastuzumab. So a lot of these things that they mentioned, I think we can probably ignore. It was for the, the status of the trial. The most important thing is knowing that people who are on this treatment didn't necessarily have the best performance status. They were randomized one-to-one to transtuzumab plus chemo. Now, the chemo arm they used was interesting. It was the loader plus cisplatin or 5-FU plus cisplatin or chemotherapy alone. Chemotherapy was given every three weeks for six cycles and with transtuzumab every three weeks ongoing until disease progression. So they only got six cycles of treatment or chemo treatment. So it would be interesting to see... Yeah, I guess the things that I raised from that is like if if you could, let's say, put them on maintenance something, uh, maybe there's previous trials looking at like maintenance 5-FU, like the colorectal setting, would that have actually had a better outcome versus just ceasing after six treatments for metastatic disease? Mikey, would you be able to comment on that? It is a little bit odd, Josh, because mm. um, as we always say, with chemotherapy, it's not like immunotherapy where the effect can last long after the drug is stopped because you're you're directly attacking the cancer with these agents. You're not, um, I guess, creating a structure that the body can affect the cancer for however long. It's it's very much not a case of teaching a man to fish and he will fight cancer for a lifetime. Um, so it's a bit odd that they did stop it straight away. That's it. The the illustrious man with amazing hair has spoken. Endpoints include the primary endpoint of overall survival and the secondary endpoint, which is progression-free survival, time to progression, overall tumor response, and time to... I've said that twice. Time to progression. I'll edit that second time to progression out. Now, 599 pa- 594 patients were assigned to 122 centers in 24 countries. Let's talk about the demographics. Primarily, 80% were the stomach and 20%, give or take a couple of percentage, was GOJ. Primarily, most of them were intestinal and only about 9% were diffuse. Remember, diffuse had poorer outcomes than intestinal and there was a cohort of mixed. Measurable tumour, 90% in each cohort. I'm surprised that those 10% got on the trial because most trials these days, you need measurable disease. And when you look at the extent of disease, 97%, so I'm going to say everyone, had a metastatic disease rather than locally advanced. What was interesting in the demographics was the uh, ECOG performance status. Most people actually still had ECOG of 0 to 1, and only about 10% at ECOG of two, although primary, this is a predominantly male cohort, 77% of the intervention and 75% of the control arm were male in that respect. But And the thing that I liked about this trial, given that gastric cancer and GOJ cancers are quite prevalent in Asian countries, 50% of patients came from an Asian country. So that's, that's really important given that they've got higher predisposition. We want to know. You know, chemotherapies don't respond uh, the same in everyone, and so it's good to know where the predominance lies. Mikey, any questions so far? 
Nope, that's all clear as mud, Josh. Please continue. Clear, 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 clear as mud. <laughs> okay, um, about a quarter had, had previous gastrectomies and about 10% had previous chemo, 9 and 4%, but that's just a very, very brief roundup. Okay, look at, let's look at her two positivity. Um, fish positive and IHC3 plus was about 45 and 43% each. And that kind of the, the volume decreased as the positivity decreased. Mikey, I found it interesting that there was actually a cohort of people, oh, they've said, they have, they've said fish negative and IHC3. So despite being fish negative, there was still immunohistochemistry positive. Now, I know there are certain other tests you can do like SISH, um, but I was wondering, I've seen it maybe once or twice where you see the fish being equivocal or negative and IHC being positive. Have you seen that often? Not for gastric cancer. Obviously, you see a lot of cases in breast cancer where the IHC is positive and everyone mm. gets very excited. Oh, we're going to be able to do something about this uh, cancer beyond just giving them hormonal replacement or nothing even. Um, and then the um, ish comes back negative, And we know that in the studies, IHC status does not confer a, uh, or does not predict a responsiveness to anti-HER2 therapy. It's very, very much the ish. Now, whether that's fish or SISH, I know in, in breast cancer, it's mainly SISH that is uh, used, um, but I'm not really sure of the difference. And again, this is all breast cancer. You can't necessarily apply these principles to gastric cancer. Yeah, interesting. Well, I mean, the IHC was three plus, and the fish was negative. So, but the SISH is chromo- chromogenic in situ hybridization for those that wanted to know what it stands for. And it, it's it's a well for us. I use it as a second line test in patients who FISH is equivocal, or you just can't get the answer you need. In Australia, you need that positivity in order to get approval for certain drugs, especially in breast cancer. And you also want to know if it's going to work. So, with your patients if their fish is negative and their IHC is only one or two plus, at the moment using trastuzumab, is it going to work? This is breast I'm talking about. But again, you know, there are newer trials coming out looking at low low um, HER2 expression and using newer drugs, which I will mention at the end. So that's my plug to listen to the end. And we will get there, right? Okay, so medium follow-up, 18.6 months. Second-line therapy after disease progression was given in 42% of patients in the trastuzumab plus chemo arm and 38% of those who received just chemo. The median overall survival, wait for this, Mikey, it was 13.8 months in the trastuzumab plus chemo versus 11.1 months in those of the chemo alone. What do you think, Mikey? It's, what is it, two and a half months, two and a half months difference with the intervention versus control arm. Well, I guess on that two-and-a-half-month benefit, normally we say with these sorts of things, oh, well, you know, there's a difference between statistical significance and clinical significance. You know, you're adding treatment, and therefore you're almost certainly adding toxicity. But I guess the thing with trastuzumab is it's normally fairly well tolerated. I mean, people might have, you know, if it's subcutaneous, they might have injection site reactions and cutaneous reactions. We know about the cardiac toxicity as well that's associated with trastuzumab. But ultimately, the vast majority of patients that I've seen with trastuzumab are able to tolerate it with nary a a side effect to speak of. So 
I guess in this particular case, when you're comparing chemotherapy plus trastuzumab to chemotherapy alone, that two and a half months is almost a free two and a half months because the treatment that you're adding is not really going to add too much toxicity. So in in this particular case, I know we're sort of uh, going on go, going against what we've said in the past, but I would take that two and a half months and run with it, Josh. The force is strong in this one. Come here, my little friend. Don't be afraid. <laughs> uh, you mentioned balance, but you're right, Mikey. The hazard ratio is actually not bad. It was 0.74. So that sort of shows how 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 terrible our treatments are, given that we can make such a significant improvement. This is a cancer that is very, very difficult to treat. And small benefits of two and a half months or so, they are important. Um, and it does, as you say, demonstrate a lack of efficacy of what we already have. But I guess, you know, again, if you're not adding too much toxicity, then there really is no, there really is no downside. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, you know, there was also a progression-free survival as well, and I'll talk about that just a little bit later. Now, the hazard ratio for patients with tumours who had high HER2 expression was 0.65 with a median overall survival of 16 months in those assigned to trastuzumab plus chemotherapy compared to 11.8 months with those that were just assigned to chemotherapy alone. So when you look at the forest plot graph, you can actually see the IHC3 plus and the FISH positive so it's about 256 of the patients did show a benefit. This is the, the I'm guessing I'm looking at the sub-analysis here, but the median OS was 17.9 versus 12.3 months with a hazard ratio of 0.58. And as expected, as you go back and you go to the lower IHC, and mind you, the IHC is zero and the IHC one was pretty small numbers, so 61 and 70. So to be really able to how do I put this nicely, to be able to uh, make a true assessment of their response with the, those low numbers is very difficult. I will now talk about toxicities. And Mikey, you summarised it for me. <laughs> the trastuzumab, it's a pretty well tolerated. As, a, as an example, you can put someone on trastuzumab for five years for metastatic breast cancer. They come in for their three-weekly infusion. They're like, hey, Josh, how you doing? I feel great. And it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Adverse events were similar across the grades. So as expected, the most common or the most frequent was nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, and stomatitis. I feel like I say this almost, I do say this every day to my patients, literally in that order, but we have medications to treat it if you take them. Other things was myelosuppression as expected with neutropenia, anemia, thrombocytopenia. And I don't know how I put these in my notes, but there's always that risk of having heart failure with trastuzumab. Noted that heart failure, in my understanding, is it is reversible. When it comes to trastuzumab, you can just stop. And you obviously don't want to get to a point where you're you're, you're giving a patient treatment and essentially they can't breathe properly because their lungs are full of fluid. So you're going to do an echo every 12 weeks, which is pretty gold standard across Australia and I'm going to suspect most of the world. Sometimes in the metastatic setting, you can push it out to six months if they're being really stable because you know, coming in for another scan is just a little bit cumbersome for these people. I want to talk quickly about Destiny Gastric 01 and Destiny Gastric 04. The reason I haven't spoken much about Gastric 04 is I don't think there's any data out yet. And 
it's looking at TDXD or Trastuzumab Deruxtecan in the first line setting in the metastatic HER2 positive gastric cancer setting. So the DESTINY Gastric 04 trial is a randomized open label study which evaluates the safety of FAM, Trastuzumab, Deruxtecan, and HER2 compared with the standard of care in patients who have progressed on a Trastuzumab containing regimen. Now, Trastuzumab is already approved in the US and Japan for treatment of adult patients with advanced or metastatic HER2 positive gastric cancer or GOJ cancer who have received prior Trastuzumab containing regimens based on the results of the the Destiny Gastric 01. Let's talk about that one because I actually got some information on this, right? Now, Destiny Gastric 01 is an antibody drug conjugate. Well, TDXD is an antibody drug conjugate consisting with an anti-HER2 antibody that cleaves a very fancy thing and it adds to the way it deposits into the cell and it kills that cell and it does a good job of killing that cell. The method, it was an open label phase two TDXD compared to chemotherapy in patients with HER2-positive advanced gastric cancer. The HER2-positive gastric or GOJ adenocarcinoma had previously progressed on two lines of therapy, including trastuzumab, and they were randomized two to one to TDXD or a physician's choice of chemo. The primary endpoint of this was an objective response, and the secondary endpoint was overall survival, response duration, progression-free survival. Out of the 187 patients, the overall survival was found to be positive with 12.5 versus 8.4 months with a hazard ratio of 0.59 and a p-value of 0.01. Objective response, this is incredible, guys. Remember, this is second line. And this is already in a place where if you looked at the benefit of the TOGA trial, it was, what, two and a bit months? 51% of TDXD and 14% of physicians' choice group had a response. So that's one in two patients you can tell them will respond to TDXD. Now, toxicities are pretty high in TDXD with low neutrophils being the primary problem, followed by 24% in the physician choice group. Anemia was second with 38% and decreased white cells was 21%. 12% of patients with TDXD did get pneumonitis. Grade 1 or 2 was 9 patients and grade 3 or 4 and 3. Now, remember, that's really important. In the breast cohort, they're getting TDXD. They actually get taken off if they get severe pneumonitis in Australia. So you want to really keep an eye on if they need screening for with HRCT, so high-resolution computer tomography or even just a regular CT if you think there's going to be imaging results. But if they come in with shortness of breath, I would very much recommend that you scan them early on. With response to the objective response, I already mentioned that, right? It was about 51 versus 14%. Complete response was seen in 11 patients or 9% of TDXD and partial response in 42 patients. Stable disease was in 35% and progressive disease only in 12%. So this this is better. So when we look at the partial response in physician choice chemotherapy, that's that's 14%. So it's 14 versus 42. Stable disease was 48 versus 35 in TDXD. But remember, if you add them all up, the stable plus partial plus complete response, that's like 80%. That's wonderful, wonderful outcomes. I think I'm just really happy with this trial. Unfortunately, we don't have Destiny Breast 04. I'm really hoping it's going to be just as good. And then we can say all of our gastric cancers that we have another option in that somewhere between 6 and 30% of patients.
The main difference between Destiny Gastric 01 and Destiny Gastric 04 is that Destiny Gastric 01 is a phase two trial and Destiny Gastric 04 is a phase three trial. So a much bigger cohort of patients to really, you know, bite the bullet. But Mikey, I've just yacked on for quite a while and I know you want to talk about immunotherapy, but I, I got the better drug this time. TDFC is just wonderful and I love talking about it. Do you want to uh, tell us about your <coughs> immunotherapy? Don't poo-poo immunotherapy, Josh. <laughs> I think, look, I think um, immunotherapy uh, is the the omnipresent uh, question. You know, it's a question that patients often come in these days, actually, and say, "I saw immunotherapy on the news. I read an article about it. Can you give me immunotherapy?" And before the trials that we're going to talk about, or that I'm going to talk about today, the answer, unfortunately, was yes, but not now. We need to give you chemotherapy first before we can access immunotherapy. And then came on two studies that I'm going to talk about, Checkmate 648 and Checkmate 649. Now, Checkmate 649 is what I'm going to focus on because um, we've talked a lot about um, adenocarcinoma, and adenocarcinoma is the more common uh, type of um, gastroesophageal cancer. The background to this is that 5-FU-based doublet chemotherapy is a standard of care for patients with metastatic upper GI adenocarcinoma. And it's important to note that the both these studies included both esophageal, gastroesophageal, and gastric primary cancers. And despite this, it still has a poor survival outcome with a median overall survival of about 12 months. Now, of course... This is uh, n- this is excluding the uh, small proportion of patients uh, that are HER2 positive. Um, hey, it's six, 6 to 30%. It's not that small. Well, it, it's, a, it's a relatively small proportion, Josh. Um, so the, <laughs> the, um, so obviously these patients, they don't have HER2 overexpression, so you can't use trastuzumab um, or as, uh, or Josh's favorite drug, trastuzumab deruxtecan. Um now the back the rationale for adding immunotherapy to the five uh, FU doublet chemotherapy was that nivolumab had de- uh, demonstrated efficacy in patients with heavily pretreated upper GI cancer in the attraction two study, and so naturally, the uh, thought was well, we've got a good drug, we know it has some effect in patients who are probably already partially inherently resistant to it. Why don't we try? and put it in the first line, where the cancer might be more naive, and we might get a better response. So, in terms of the trial design, the trial was actually quite a large study. 1,581 patients, which for gastric cancer, and again, remember you're looking at patients who are ECOG 0 to 1, which is, they don't exactly grow on, grow on trees, those sorts of patients, um, is, is quite a large study. Patients were randomized one-to-one to receive either standard chemo with that 5-FU doublet, usually oxaliplatin, um, with, uh, and compared it with chemo plus nivolumab as per attraction too. Um, there was also a study, uh, or, or an arm, there was also an arm of this study, which we won't talk about very much, but that included ipi, ipilimumab and nivolumab uh, without any chemotherapy. But the study wasn't really set up to compare ipinevo and nevo plus chemo, which is unfortunate. 
um, because the um, it, the benefit was numerically fairly similar in terms of uh, progression-free survival, but Ipinevo really disappointed in this, uh, a little in this bit, study. I, I feel we're a little bit mean with Ipinevo. It does have a place, just not in this total cancer. I guess the other thing, Josh, with the, with the Ipinevo plus chemo yeah. idea is that you are looking at significant, significant toxicity. And so if you are trying to sell this patient, this regimen of Ipinevo plus chemo to patients, then you might find it... Um, it's very difficult to recruit. I know. I'm already a bit sad. I, I know they probably didn't choose Ipinevo plus chemotherapy as the arm because of the toxicity burden. But sometimes if they had really good cohort of patients, it would be nice to see if it actually did have the benefit. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the patients who were enrolled in the study had to have previously untreated locally advanced or metastatic adenocarcinoma of the esophagus, GOJ, or stomach, as we said before. Inclusion criteria, they have to be of good performance status, ECOG 0 to 1. They have to have measurable disease, which is a fairly common uh, inclusion criteria anyway these days because you have to be able to assess the effect of your intervention. Um, And patients with previous neoadjuvant or adjuvant treatment were allowed, but they had to be greater than six months prior to randomization. So you are excluding patients who have really, really not done well. If they've progressed within six months of neoadjuvant or adjuvant treatment, as we said in our our previous episode, with usually with FLOT or CROSS or that sort of thing, um, if they progress that quickly, then the cancer is obviously very, very chemo-resistant. So you do have these patients, they do exist, of course, um, but they really tend to not do well. And so practically speaking, we would still use this um, regimen of uh, chemotherapy doublet plus nivolumab, but they weren't included in this trial. And so technically there's no data for them. Exclusion criteria were patients with known CNS disease, which is very, very uncommon in my experience with gastric cancer. Um, It doesn't tend to make it to uh, make it to the brain before something else fails, unfortunately. And patients uh, with HER2 positivity were also excluded. So there was no crossover of patient populations between this trial and Josh's TOGA. Very much so. It's uncommon. Although if they come out of the headache, I will scan their brain and I have been proved wrong before. Yeah, absolutely. The primary um, population during the study was actually amended to focus on patients who had a PDL1 CPS, that's combined proportion score, of five or more. Now, CPS, we won't talk about this too much in too great a detail. I'm sure we could do a whole podcast on on CPS and, and the definitions thereof. But to summarize it very, very briefly, the CPS is a combination of the PDL1 expression on both the tumor cells and the infiltrating immune cells. Whereas TPS, which is most commonly used in something like lung cancer, is uh, expressed not as a score, so five or more, but as a percentage. And TPS only includes the uh, PDL1 expression on the tumor cells, and therefore it's expressed as a as a percentage. Dual primary endpoints were overall survival and progression-free survival, again, focusing on this group of CPS of five or more. Secondary endpoints were overall survival in patients with a CPS of greater than one, and in the intention-to-treat population. That's So that's uh, patients 
who were enrolled in the study, regardless of CPS expression. Other secondary endpoints were um, patient-reported quality of life and safety. In terms of the demographics, these demographics really do uh, reflect the the average demographic of patients with gastric cancer. So the majority, 70%, were men. Uh, The majority, 60%, were ECOG-1. So even in a study that you're really, really trying to get patients who are fit so they can obviously comply with the study protocol and take the take the experimental treatment, you're still getting the majority who have some impairment. 70% were gastric cancer, and that's another area of uh, focus because we, uh, while we apply this to GOJ and esophageal adenocarcinoma, really the, the strong data is in gastric cancer. And the majority, greater than 95%, were metastatic as opposed to locally advanced. And again, finding a locally advanced non-metastatic gastric cancer is incredibly rare. I don't think I've ever seen a case like that Um, because by the time patients come to medical attention, even if it is with with local symptoms, they're either resectable or they have uh, progressed to a metastatic stage. So in terms of results, so the overall survival, and again, this is in patients with a CPS score of greater than 5, was 14.4 months versus 11.1 months. So much like uh, the modest clinical benefit with the addition of trastuzumab in toga, the absolute benefit was relatively small. The hazard ratio was 0.71. The progression-free survival in uh, the CPS greater than 5 group, again, the absolute benefit is relatively small, 7.7 versus 6 months. Um, with a hazard ratio of 0.68. In terms of the other subgroups, in patients with a CPS score of greater than 1, and and this gets a little bit sort of messy, I guess, but in patients with a CPS score of greater than 1, the hazard ratio was 0.77. In patients with a CPS score of less than 1, the hazard ratio was 0.92. So we're really, really seeing a diminishing benefit the lower the CPS score is, which I guess stands to reason because CPS gives the immunotherapy something to work with. The overall response rate was 60 versus 45%. The pathological complete response rate was 12 versus 7%. And if, again, we look at the uh, patients with lower CPS scores, the overall response rate in patients with a CPS of less than 1 was 51%, so significantly less than the patients with a greater CPS. The median treatment duration across all patients was 6.8 months. So again, really emphasizing the fact that our treatments are not that great. The most common adverse events were nausea, diarrhea, peripheral neuropathy, and the most common grade 3 to 4 adverse events were neutropenia, diarrhea, and thrombocytopenia. So in conclusion... Chemotherapy plus nivolumab was superior to chemotherapy alone. I think that can be said without fear of contradiction. However, there's this ongoing debate, and it is you'll, you'll sometimes hear this discussed in unit meetings and uh, what have you, is whether we actually need to select patients based on the CPS score, given the deep diminishing benefit with a lower CPS. Practically speaking, because particularly in Australia, we don't have CPS routinely available, and I'm not really sure if it's if it's validated. Um, we just give this to everybody because ultimately, I guess, coming back, uh, drawing parallels with uh, with the uh, Toga trial, 
um, for the vast majority of patients, the addition of nivolumab will not add too much toxicity. Yes, you have patients with the horrible immune-mediated adverse events, and unfortunately they're relatively unavoidable. But the majority of patients can tolerate nivolumab very, very well. So it makes more sense, I guess, from a from a practical perspective, especially seeing as we don't have access to CPS, to just give it to everybody. And again, because we are not 100% uh, familiar with the mechanisms of immunotherapy and gastric and esophageal cancer, there may be something under the surface that means that a patient with a CPS of less than 1% or less than 5% actually has an unexpectedly good response. 100%, Mikey. I think it's really difficult to tell a patient we have no options where this potentially could help them. Yes, CPS and all these... Can you call them biomarkers or predictors or... Biopredictors. Biomarker predictors, you know, join the words. Until they're really strongly validated, I think we we have a duty of care to at least try because we know that patients who are EDL1 negative, you know, CPS negative, can still respond well to immunotherapy. We don't have all the key answers. And so what we're doing is we're giving it to them. Toxicity from addition of nivolumab is pretty low. It's the standard immunotherapy side effects you'd expect. And if my 85-year-old chap can tolerate chemo, I'm definitely going to give him nivolumab. Yeah, look, I think you're absolutely right, Josh. I think you're. Um, it's a very practical sort of approach just to give this to everybody. Um, I will briefly mention the Ipinevo arm because that was sort of shoved to the side, but it didn't show a benefit in the in the uh, in the long run compared to um, chemotherapy, um, which was a surprise. Actually, I think there was a benefit in um, pro- in progression free survival, but no overall survival benefit. And the overall survival benefit, or n- neither of the results, actually um, reached statistical significance. And of course, with uh, ipilimumab and nivolumab being the fairly toxic combination that it is, there was significantly higher toxicity rates. So ipinevo in gastric and GOJ cancer and esophageal cancer, for the moment at least, is very much dead. There's no role for it in this space. Before we um, before we wrap up on this, I will mention, because I mentioned it again at the, um, at the start, a brief note on Checkmate 648, which was the rough equivalent... Um, to this study, but with squamous cell cancer, uh, specifically esophageal squamous cell cancer, because you don't really get gastric cancers that are squamous cell. Uh, again, there was a benefit of nivolumab plus chemo versus um, versus chemo alone. And again, there was an ipinevo arm that didn't really cut the mustard. Um, but much like we said last week with uh, with our early gastric and gastroesophageal arm, there was a greater magnitude of benefit compared to the adenocarcinoma space. I know we say we shouldn't um, compare across studies, and then naturally, of course, we do. Um, but it, it followed the pattern of uh, cancer treatment in the early space where squamous cell cancers, yes, the outcomes were worse, um, if they were not treated or if they weren't treated with immunotherapy, but they tended to actually do better if they received immunotherapy. So um, that's led us to the conclusion that squamous cell cancers are actually quite immunoresponsive, not obviously to the same degree as something like melanoma, but there there is definitely a space for it. 
And so now, um, Folfox plus Nevo is a standard of care for squamous cell carcinoma as well as adenocarcinoma. And it's important to mention for our Australian listeners that only recently nivolumab has become PBS listed for advanced upper GI cancers. So it is very much an option. But speaking of scores, if you haven't already, we'd love you to score us very highly on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I know, I know I had to. And I think the other thing I wanted to mention, Mikey, is we are so very excited. Next week on our podcast, we will be interviewing the one and only Andrew Jensen. Yes, Andrew is a very old friend of ours who has uh, a much better sounding voice than either of us. Um, But uh, we all went through our training together. We all wanted to do oncology together and we're very excited to have Andrew, uh, our first international guest for an international podcast um, uh, on, on the show next week. So if you were ever curious about what it's like to train in Australia, to work in Australia, potentially to move from a foreign country to Australia, I think his was New Zealand, so not too far. And about being a dad and finishing really hard specialty training, this will be the podcast episode for you coming coming exclusively to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Firefox, all of the other all, all, exciting all of the services other that exist on the uh, the metaverse. <laughs> yes, exactly. Stay tuned next week for Andrew Jensen. We like to call him Teflon Jensen. He'll be here next week on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.